Let's open the Bible this evening to its second chapter, which is Genesis 2. The text for the sermon, which we will not reread, is verses 18 through 23. Let's read Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is it, which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Delium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the same is it, that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hittichel, that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now the words of the text. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help, meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called Every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found in help meat for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. 
And Adam said, this is now a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This is the inspired and infallible sacred scripture. As announced, the text is verses 18 through 23. Woman, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it was just a couple weeks ago that Dictionary.com announced as its word of the year for 2022, woman. Oxford and Merriam-Webster and the others, of course, they have their word of the year. And so does the very popular and easily accessible dictionary.com. And for 2022, they chose the word woman. Because searches for woman spiked in 2022. That's due in part because a nominee for the Supreme Court refused to define woman when asked. And that's due especially because transgender rights and identity have come to the forefront of our national discourse, and that's not a good thing. In fact, it's an ominous thing. Not only is the foundation of our society shaking, but before our very eyes, the foundation of society is crumbling. It is right now in our lifetime That society is redefining marriage officially by the Supreme Court. And it is right now in our lifetime that society is redefining man and woman. And it is right now in our lifetime that rebellion against God in individual human autonomy is so great that man not only seeks to be God, but in seeking to be God seeks to redefine the most basic concepts of human existence, marriage, man, woman, and society by and large accepts that, at least more and more accept it. And it is right now in our lifetime that a biological male can stand up and say, I do not care what my DNA and chromosomes say. I do not care what you say. I do not care what biology says. I certainly do not care what God in the Bible says. I feel like and I want to be a woman. I am a woman. And more and more people are okay with that. And it won't be long and you will be imprisoned if you object and deny. What is a woman? Everyone knows that a woman is an adult, female, human being. 
What is a man? Everyone knows a man is an adult, male, human being. And what is marriage? Everyone knows. It is a lifelong, committed, exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. But foundations are not only shaking, the foundation is crumbling. And so society is redefining these terms. Tonight we're going to go back to the beginning and open up the authoritative and unchanging Word of God as it is found in the inspired book of Genesis. And we will see what God says about man, about woman, about marriage. We're going back to the beginning. For to understand anything, it is requisite that you understand its origin, that you go back to its beginning. And that is, in fact, the methodology of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that when the Pharisees came tempting him regarding marriage and divorce, Jesus said, let's go back to the beginning. Have ye not read? Matthew 19, verses 4 and following. Have ye not read? You all have a Bible. You have the Scriptures. In that day, it was the Old Testament, which begins with the book of Genesis. Have you not read? That he which made them in the beginning made them male and female. And then Jesus continues and he ends up quoting what we find in our text this evening out of Genesis 2 verses 18 through 23. If you want to understand marriage, and now before I say anything about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, if you want to understand marriage, says Jesus, we've got to go back to the beginning. And let's do that tonight. To see God creating a man, God creating a woman, and God bringing the woman to the man in marriage. And may God use the proclamation of this word this evening and our continued study of his word, including the book of Genesis, to give us very, very strong conviction so that the foundation of the church does not begin to shake and crumble. We take as our theme, God brings the woman to Adam. Let's look first of all at the act of God, second, the response of Adam, and third, the significance for us. The act of God consists of three parts, and that first part was God awakening Adam to his need for a woman. Now, as we come to the text this evening, we ought to understand that in Genesis 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, we have a description of the creation of all things, and then how after those six days, God rested on the seventh day. As we continue reading the narrative after chapter 2, verse 3, the inspired writer Moses is not continuing the chronology and now telling us what happens, let's say, in week two or week three or week four. But the inspired writer is going back into that first week, namely to that very significant sixth day in which man was created. And now he will relate to us more distinctly what happened on that day. On that sixth day, God made Adam. And now Adam was lacking something, but he didn't know it. 
verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. It is not good. That's a very shocking statement. After everything you read in chapter 1, and behold, it was good, and behold, it was good. And now all of a sudden, God not only thinks, but God states, it is not good. And it is not good that man should be alone. Adam's aloneness was not good because as long as Adam remains alone, he's not suited for the purpose that God eternally ordained for him. And we can understand something about what it is that's not good by the fact that God will create and bring to Adam a woman. And that makes plain that in his aloneness, Adam was incomplete. That's what's not good. Adam is incomplete. How could Adam express his social nature as a human being when he's alone? God made him for intimate fellowship. Not only fellowship with him as the living God, but fellowship for with others who will be like him. But no matter where Adam went in the whole of the creation, he could not find anyone who was like him. He couldn't find anyone who could understand him and relate to him and speak with him and socialize with him in the mutual bonds of love. There wasn't anyone. It is not good that the man should be alone. And so God says, I will make him and help meet for him. But Adam didn't know this. Having been created by God, Adam immediately knew God, his friend, sovereign, in a covenant relationship, and Adam had no sin. And everywhere Adam went in the creation, everything was so beautiful and marvelous and amazing. Adam did not know he was missing something. And so the very first act of God is to awaken Adam to the conscious realization that he's missing something. And that's what God does. Verses 19 and 20. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. Just as God would do later by his marvelous providence in bringing the animals to Noah at the door of the ark, God brings the animals to the king of creation, Adam, so he can name them. Now, Adam's task was not to brainstorm and arbitrarily select names for all of the animals. It was not as if Adam looked at, well, let's say, a camel and said, hmm, what shall I call this? Zebra? Or giraffe? No. Why don't I call it? Camel. That's not what Adam did. Every creature already had a name given to it by God, a name that perfectly corresponded with its nature, its true nature, for the name is revelatory. 
The name tells you what something is. Why is this woman? Because that's who she is. She was taken out of man. Why is she Eve? Because that's who she is. She's the mother of all living. Why is he Jehovah? Because that's who he is. The unchanging I am that I am. The name is revelatory. And God created each creature. And by creating that creature, gave a name to it that revealed what that creature was. Now in his original state of righteousness, with his superior knowledge, Adam was able to look at a thing and he could penetrate right into its essence and he could see a thing for what it really was and therefore he could immediately know the name of it because the name of the thing was contained right within it. And so he names these creatures by calling out their names. We read in verse 19, and God brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Was is italicized. It's been added. Literally, we read that the name thereof. It didn't go like this. God brought an animal to Adam. Adam decided what to call it. He names it something, and now that becomes the name thereof. The creature already had a name. Adam is just now calling it out. And whatsoever he called out, the text says that, not that became, but that, the name thereof. That was the name thereof. So here come these creatures. And Adam's naming them. And it probably didn't take very long for Adam to come to the conscious realization that everyone has another. There's all these pairs, male and female. Noah would see the, na- the same thing standing at the door of the ark. Male and female. Here they come in pairs. Every creature had another one just like it that perfectly fit it and corresponded to it. And Adam comes to the realization then that I don't have one. There is not one like me. There was nothing in the creation that could complement Adam. Verse 20 concludes, but for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. He did not have a helper. A helper is someone who lives with you and who loves you and who cares you and, and assists, assists you and helps you. And a helper who is meet for you is one who fits you, who corresponds to you, who is at your same level, who is of your same rank, who is of your same nature, who is of your same spirituality. Now, it didn't matter where Adam went in the creation. He couldn't find anything that could communicate with him and know him. There was nothing that was created in the image of God as Adam was. He couldn't find another so that the two of them as kindred spirits could know the Lord God and fall down before him in worship. There was no one like him. Now, maybe there was a bird sitting on a tree branch above his head, and that bird could chirp and sing sweet melodies. And that's very lovely. And maybe there was a member of what we know as the dog family, and that creature could come up to Adam and whimper and and nuzzle close to Adam. But there was nothing to correspond to him. Nothing like him, not even the angels. 
who have a different nature. And there certainly wasn't some parent creature like a hominid or some ape-like creature from which Adam had descended according to millions and millions of years of descent as taught by evolutionary theory. If that were true, then Adam could just go back to that parent creature, whatever it was, and there would be some resemblance. But there was not any like Adam. And so the very first act of God is to awaken Adam to his need, his lack. He has no helper who is meet for him. Then the second act of God was to make a woman, 21 and 22. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman. Why did God put him to sleep? Well, there are many different explanations, and it's certainly not the case that God put him to sleep in order to prevent Adam from feeling any pain, as if God is now playing the part of the surgeon and he's going to give Adam some anesthetic. Put him to sleep, cut him open, take out a rib, sew him back up, and then wake him up and Adam doesn't have to feel any of that pain. God can do all things. God can take a rib out of any one of us without having us feel it. And he could have done that to Adam too. God puts Adam to sleep because God is about to perform the wonder of creation. And when God creates, God will have no human eyewitnesses. God made everything. And then he made the man. So that the man saw none of it. And now God's going to make a woman. But before he makes the woman, he puts the man to sleep. So the man will not see this. He will not be a witness because God will not have human eyewitnesses. Really, there's a parallel there in the spiritual realm too with regard to the spiritual recreation of regeneration. Regeneration is a creation. It's a new creation. The canons of Dort call it a creation and say it's a supernatural work that is not inferior to Creation, regeneration is that first saving work of the Holy Spirit when he comes to the dead elect sinner and he enters the heart and makes that dead sinner alive. That's regeneration. That's a creation, a new creation. And no one has ever witnessed that creation of regeneration. Not even in your own heart. You don't experience regeneration. You don't see it. You don't feel it. Even if you're a pregnant woman and you have a little baby in your womb, like a John the Baptist, and God comes and regenerates the little baby in your womb, you don't feel that. You don't know that. The only way you know regeneration is by the fruits of it, by the evidences of it. 
Regeneration is very mysterious. Jesus will talk about that with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Regeneration is a new creation, and that new creation has no human witnesses. Why will God have no human witnesses when he creates? To magnify the scriptures as his written word. How do you know? How do you know anything about this whole vast creation and how it came into existence? You weren't there. No scientist was there. No university professor was there. No minister was there. No father, no teacher was there. No one was there in the beginning. No one saw what God did. How do you know how the sun came into existence? You weren't there. So how do you know? You go to the Bible. And you say with a childlike faith, the Bible tells me so. That's how I know. God will magnify His Word. And now by the miracle of salvation in Christ, we have faith. And we believe the word, and therefore we believe that God put Adam to sleep. Now this is very silly to many people, but I believe it, and you do too. That God put Adam to sleep, he opened him up, he pulled out one of his ribs, and he took that rib and he made a woman. Verse 22 says, he made a woman. Literally, in the original, we read, he built a woman. And if there's any builders here, and probably we're all builders in one respect or another, who hasn't built something, we all know that when you build, there's a plan, and there's foresight, and there's care, and there's craftsmanship, and that's what God did with his rib. He built a woman. He built her right out of man. He didn't form her out of the dust of the earth. If God had formed the woman out of the dust of the earth, then we would have two. We would have two independent creatures. We would have two beginnings, a man out of the dust and a woman out of the dust. But that's not what God did. There's one. There's one beginning. There's one organic head, the man, Adam. And not only does the whole human race come out of Adam and Eve together, but even the woman, even the woman, comes right out of the man, the head, the beginning. So God takes the man, he takes a part of him, and now he builds a woman. And the third and climactic act of God is to bring her to the man. So that verse 22 concludes, and brought her unto the man told very simply. This was the first wedding in history, and that's very clear from the next verse, verse 24, which gives the institution of the creation ordinance of marriage for the human race. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And that makes very plain, therefore, that what precedes it was a marriage. God wed the man 
and the woman. It was a very simple wedding. There was no dress. There was no suit. There were no rings. There were no attendants. There were no witnesses. There was no officiating pastor. Of course, there was no photography. There was a sleeping groom. He was sleeping. Out of him, God built a bride. And then God woke up the groom and brought to him the bride, and they were married. And verse 25 says they were both naked. Together they were naked, and there was no shame there. They lived together in all of the bliss of marriage. God brought the woman to the man. Now, we can learn more about all of this as we consider the response of Adam to God's act. First of all, looking at what Adam said, the content of his speech, and second, looking at how Adam said it, the manner of his speaking. And isn't it wonderful that this response of the man to the woman that we find here in verse 23 is the very first word that Scripture ever records of a man speaking. We have yet to read of something man has said until we come to verse 23. Now we get to hear what man says. And this is the very first thing a man says. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of Man. Woman. She shall be called woman. Obviously, Adam did not know where this creature came from because he was sleeping. So God had to tell him somehow. And now Adam knows he's a man. And out of him came this creature. And because he's a man and this creature was taken out of him, This creature cannot be anything but woman because she was taken out of man. She's bone in my bones and flesh in my flesh. She shall be called woman. A woman is a female man. That is, Hugh man. Human. Now, I've been using man in the sense of male and we'll continue to speak of man in the sense of male. But when I say that a woman is a female man, I mean a female human. A woman is not a female male. That is a contradiction. A woman is not an animal. And don't treat her like one or worse than one. A woman is not an angel and not a god and don't have expectations for her as if she were. A woman is a, I'll say man, you understand, human. A woman is a human, but now the female version. And there are only two versions, Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. God made man male and female. There are two kinds. 
two versions. The female, rather the woman, is the female human. In the Hebrew tongue, we take a noun and add the suffix ah to make it feminine grammatically. So the Hebrew word for man is ish, and the Hebrew word for woman is isha. You take man, ish, and you stick on that feminine ending, isha, so that we read, and she shall be called isha because she was taken out of ish. What is she? Isha. She's the female version of the human. Now, her glory, as she was wonderfully built by God, is that she is meat for the man, the male. She's at his level. She's of his rank. She's made in the image of God as he was. She's a rational, moral creature. She has the same body as Adam. That is, of the same substance. Not a body like the animals. She has the same body as Adam. She has the same soul as Adam. The same spirituality. She can know. She can reason. And she can know and relate to the living God. But for all of the similarities between the male and the female, the woman is physically, biologically, sexually, psychologically, emotionally different than the male version of the human being. For all their sameness, she is different. And we don't have time this evening to try to articulate all of those differences between the male and the female, but simply to underscore that she is different. And as a woman now, she perfectly corresponds to the man. She balances him. She makes him complete. Everything that he lacks, he finds in her. God made the two of them to fit together perfectly as complements. And they must fit together, and they do fit together. The woman wasn't made out of the dust of the earth as some independent creature to live some independent life somewhere in the Garden of Eden. She was made right out of the man, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, and she was immediately brought right back to the man to be with him, to be close to him, to live with him together, and to stay together. And now in that relationship as the man and the woman live together, He has authority, and she is the helper of him. She, rather, he was not taken out of her. She was taken out of him. And she was not first, and she did not name him, but he was first, and he named her. And he will have authority in the relationship. And it belongs to her very identity as woman that she will be subservient to the man lovingly helping him, assisting him, caring for him, as God made her a help who is meet, who fits the man. So God makes a woman, and he brings her to the man. God did not make a man out of the man. Adam did not say, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He... It wasn't a he, 
there was a man, a he, and out of the he, God made a she, and now brings the she to the he, and she shall be called woman. What is a woman? A woman is the female version of the human. A woman is taken out of the man. And a woman is brought to the man, corresponding to him, and now a helper for him. So Adam says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's not only what Adam said, but there's instructive to us the manner in which he said it. Now, verse 23 appears to be a bare statement of fact, but the manner of Adam's expression is disguised a bit by the simplicity of the language. This is really an exclamatory cry of delight. And that's evident from two considerations. First of all, just an understanding of the circumstances there in paradise. It's day six, and Adam had a very busy day on his first day. He had observed so many things. He was looking about this beautiful creation that God had made. Surely, it never entered his imagination that there would be another human being like him. Well, God begins bringing these animals to Adam, and he's naming the animals, and it probably didn't take very long before Adam comes to the realization that he's alone. God puts him to sleep. Then God wakes him up. And when God wakes up Adam, Adam now lays his eyes upon the most magnificent and astonishing of all sights that he had ever beheld. Standing before him now was one unlike anything else he had ever seen in the whole of God's creation. Standing before him was a woman who had been built by God in all of her glory and magnificence and honor and beauty. A woman. And no doubt when Adam opened his eyes and he saw for the first time this woman, his heart was pounding, pounding in excitement. And so when verse 23 says, and Adam said, you ought to understand that as Adam cried with delight, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And verse 25 says they were both naked, the man and the woman, and they were not ashamed. They lived together in the happiness and bliss of their marriage. What a wonderful thing for Adam. But not only are there the circumstances, there are the words that Adam uses according to verse 23. And those indicate his excitement. He says, now. This is now, bone of my bones. And that word now in the original means now at last. Or now finally. It's not as if Adam was being impatient, but that word now finally indicates that it must have been 
very quickly that when God started bringing these animals to Adam, very quickly he understood that he was alone while they all have a complement. And as he continued naming all these animals, the impression was pressed deeper and deeper into his consciousness that they all have another, and I, Adam, am alone. And the moments continued to pass as he's naming these animals, and then God puts him to sleep, and then God wakes him up, and he opens his eyes, and when he first sees the woman, he says, this is now, now at last, now finally, one who is like me, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. A cry of delight. But he not only says now, he says this. This is now. You probably never referred to your wife using the demonstrative pronoun this. This. That might not sound so wonderful. It sounds rather impersonal and cold. But you understand that Adam is so full of wonderment that he does not want rashly to identify this creature with any term that will limit her, with any term that will call attention only to one aspect of her glorious being. And so he says, this, this, this one, from the crown of her head to the sole of her feet, this one, all that she is on the outside, and all that she is on the inside into the deepest recesses of her heart, this one before me, for all that she is, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. This one. So that Adam did not merely say, Adam exclaimed with delight, woman, as God made and God brought to Adam. The woman, she was made from the man. And she was made for the man. And Adam knew it and joyfully called her woman. There are many points of significance this evening as we consider this account. And especially because in the intervening period between then and now, Sin has thrown everything into confusion. Let's consider three points of significance. First, with respect to man. Second, with respect to woman. And third, as our climax, with respect to God. First. The main point of significance with respect to man is that it is not good for the man be alone. That's not only true with respect to Adam, and there's a special sense in which that is true with respect to Adam, as we will see in our conclusion, but that's true for men. That's still true. It is not good for the man to be alone. Of course, there are exceptions, and an exception is not inferior It is God's will that some men never marry and remain alone. Not alone in the absolute sense of the word. That's not good. 
not alone apart from Christ, our only comfort in life and death, that's not good, not alone apart from the body of Christ, the church, that's not good, but alone with respect to marriage. It is good for some to be alone in the single state. Paul happily confesses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he even extols the virtues of the single state and could wish that even more men would be single as he was single and alone because then one can more readily serve the Lord and his kingdom without having to care for a wife and children. You think of the thousands of miles that Paul traveled in the Mediterranean world as the missionary to the Gentiles. How in the world could he have done that work if he were caring for a wife and children? So he extols the virtues of being alone as the missionary to the Gentiles. There are exceptions. And while there are exceptions, the exception does not silence the rule that it is not good for the man to be alone. Solomon put it this way in Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9, two are better than one. This is a word then for single young men in the church. Ordinarily, without the woman, the man is incomplete. And the church must say that. It is not good for the man to be alone. Young man of marriageable age and circumstances get married. And if you are too immature and you are too self-centered and you are too wrapped up in your worldly interests, then you need to grow up in the Lord Jesus. Pray for a spouse and be observant to the providential directing of the hand of God who according to the marriage form still today brings to every man his wife. Open your eyes and God might have a godly young woman right in your sphere of life. You just don't see her right now. Or maybe she's not right there. I'm leading a Bible study right now in the basement of Hope Church for the area young adults. And I've traveled quite a bit throughout Classes West as a minister in Classes West and Classes East. I always marvel. We have so many God-fearing young adults, males and females. There are so many of them all throughout our churches. But we don't often see one another. And maybe we need an adventure here or there. They're there. It is not good for the man to be alone. But that's also God's word for the married man. Married man, it is not good for you to be alone. It is not good for you to be married legally on paper, but not actually in practice. It is not good for you if you do not consciously feel a need for your wife. 
If you do not desire her and communicate with her and seek to draw close to her, that's not good. It is not good for you, married man, to live alone from your wife. To be alone away from her and with your hobbies and recreation and books and sports and all of your interest and your work so that you don't dwell with her. To be alone from her and always with your buddies or even worse, to be alone from her and with your alcohol or with your screen or even worse, to be alone from her and with another man's wife. It is not good for you to be alone. And it is not good for you or her if you mistreat her and you are rough with her so that she does not want to be with you or worse, she must flee from you. Then you're both alone and it's not good. And to the husband who doubts whether he ever should have gotten married Because to live with his wife is misery for him day and night. God says to you too, it's not good for you to be alone. Keep talking, keep working, keep praying, and keep talking as Christ talks to his bride. And you know that there's power in the cross of Jesus. It is not good for the man to be alone. And if there's any church that begins to look like the Roman Catholic Church, which for so long has forced untold numbers of priests into a vow of celibacy and now reaps the abomination of all manner of sexual perversion, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's better to marry than to burn. It is good, it is good for a man to be married to a woman with whom he can live sexually, emotionally, socially, spiritually, as friends walking in fellowship with their God in Jesus Christ. And to any who does not have that, and desires that to any who is single and alone without a spouse, with the desire for a spouse, wait, wait, I say, on the Lord, be of good courage. Second, with respect to the woman, we learn that her glorious place in marriage is that of a helper. The woman was not created and given a day, a week, a month, a year. To move about in the Garden of Eden doing her own thing. The woman was created and she was immediately brought to the man to be his helper. God did not make the woman to be a ruler to rule over the man, to be an arguer to argue with her man, to be a roamer to roam away from her man, or to be a Facebooker or Pinterester and Facebook her husband out of the house into aloneness. I say that because it wasn't that long ago a middle-aged man said to me, 
I don't know what to do. My wife will not get off Facebook and Pinterest. In the car, in the house, morning, noon, and night. I don't know what to do. And I said, well, are you doing anything to make her like you and and want to be with you? He said, I try. You want to talk? Can we just talk? Can we go on a walk? Can we play a game? Can we do anything together? But I can't get her off Facebook. He didn't make you to Facebook your husband into aloneness. He made you as a helper, meet for your man. A helper who looks at her man and says, this is my man. God gave me this man. And all that he is from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, on the outside and in the inside, all the way to the depths of his heart, this is my man. And my man has the headship in this house. And my man has the responsibility to put bread on this table. And my man often has responsibilities on behalf of the school and on behalf of the church. My man has many things to do. This is my man whom God gave to me. My man, what can I do and what can I be and what can I say to make your life more enjoyable? Because God made me to be a helper to help you. One who's fit for you. And that's not unnatural. That's not slavery. That's her role. That's her glory. That's her honor as created by God. She's the helper who fits him as no one else does. Again, of course, there are exceptions in that. God makes some women single. And they have a very valuable place of honor in the body. And there they help the body. Ordinarily, when a God-fearing young man walks by and he's interested in marriage and says, I would like to be married to you, ordinarily, the woman says, I would like to be married to you. And they marry. Woman, helper, if you ever think your place is too lowly and shameful, remember that you are the crowning masterpiece of the creation so that without you, God says, it is not good. With you, God says, it is very good. In conclusion this evening, with respect to God, we learn two things from his very significant names as they are found in the text, revelatory as they are. I will not read all of the verses, but four times we read the Lord God, that is Jehovah God. First of all, he is God, and in the text that reveals all of his virtues as the creator. God the creator. All these things God made. And who can do what God does in making all things out of nothing? Look at the man. God made him out of the dust. Try to do that. Try to work with the dust and make a man. What has God done? Look at the woman. The thoughtful, loving, caring woman 
beautiful, more glorious than the sun and the moon and the stars. God made her out of a, a rib. Who can do what our God does? May the God of creation be extolled and may the whole creation fall down before our God as the creator and glorify him forever. And think of that when we sing our concluding doxology. Glory be to the creator. But secondly, he's called Lord, that is Jehovah, which name emphasizes his unchanging faithfulness as the God of salvation in Jesus Christ, so that the God who made a woman is the God of salvation. There was no salvation yet. There was no sin yet. But the God who made the woman is the God of covenant salvation in Jesus Christ. Indeed, it was not good that this man be alone, because as long as this man is alone, then the ultimate plan which God had ordained from all eternity cannot be fulfilled. So God made a woman, and God brought them together in marriage, and out of the man and the woman, God made a human race, and the human race falls in its head, Adam, when Adam falls, and out of that fallen human race through time and history, God will call unto himself an elect church, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and one day out of that human race, God will bring forth the seed of the woman without any of the sin of the race, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will come and be the new head, the head of the elect people, and he will reconcile his people unto God. He will lay down his life even to the death of the cross, and he will obtain an everlasting salvation for all of these elect people so that one day Jesus, the husband, and his bride, the church, will be lifted up into the highest heights of the new heavens and the new earth. Will the church, as bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, will live forever with Christ and God will be all in all. How will that happen? When man remains alone, It is not good that the man should be alone. So the God of salvation made him a woman. And God be thanked, he not only brought a woman to a man, but he brings a Savior to you and me. Because Adam needed him, and I need him, and you need him. We all need this Savior. And he reconciles us unto our God. And now by his Holy Spirit, because we are bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, by his Holy Spirit, we can strive to be faithful in our marriage and we can strive to be faithful in the single life. And we can live in the society where foundations are crumbling before our very eyes and be a witness unto the truth of marriage, of man, and of woman. to the day Christ returns, if God will grant us that mercy. So let us go forth in the power of the grace of the Savior, standing for what is right and true, according to the infallible scriptures. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee for thy word and for the giving of thy only begotten Son, who is coming again, the great bridegroom whom we will love to see face to face, Until that day, keep us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.